Well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, in Matthew chapter 18, if you'd like to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some around the room, please grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, take one of those with you. We would love to bless you with uh, a copy of the Word of God. So if you don't have a Bible, please take one of the black ones around the room. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Verses 15 and 20. Now, we've been going through uh, Matthew 18 for a few weeks now, and uh, we've seen Jesus talk a lot about disciples, about um, how disciples should not lead one another into sin, how disciples should um, be humble with one another, how disciples should uh, care for one another uh, when they stray. That was our text last week, the parable of the straying sheep. Um, And and really, our text this morning is, uh, I think we could say, an elaboration on what we read last week. When a disciple strays away from Christ and from his people, uh, we we saw in that parable we should go after them and care for them, right? Having the same kind of care that Christ has, but what does that look like in practice? And that's really the subject of our text this morning. That's the subject of our text this morning, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Um, In this portion of Matthew that we're going to look at today, um, Jesus explains what disciples must do to deal with sin in their midst. Um, This is a process that for centuries has been called church discipline. Some of you may have heard that term before, others of you may not have. Um, And unfortunately, when people hear that phrase church discipline, um, they they shudder, they think of something mean, something heavy-handed, something authoritarian, right? Um, And that's why many churches today do not practice what's called church discipline. Um, In fact, a 2017 study showed that 18% of Protestant churches in the U.S. have no policies in place uh, to deal with members who will not repent of their sin. I think that number sounds a little low personally, right? I I think it's probably more than that. Um, But there is an aversion that people have to the idea of church discipline. And I think part of the aversion to this, this idea of church discipline, which we'll, we'll get into in a moment, comes from a misunderstanding of the word discipline. Um, we usually associate that word with punishment, don't we? I think I need to discipline my kids, right? Which means <clears throat> maybe they're going to get a swat, maybe they're going to get, right? Something like that. Um, the Bible paints a broader picture than that, though, of discipline. It's not so much punishment as it is teaching and training, right? Teaching and training. We, we have verses... I like Hebrews 12, verse 6, which says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Right? And the idea here is that the Lord guides and corrects his children that they might be righteous. Um, the Greek word for discipline, paideo, doesn't refer to, to cruel punishment, but it refers to training, to education with the goal of right conduct. So when we think about church discipline, we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that in mind because I'm going to use that phrase a lot. As we go through this text this morning, and I don't want you to think the church punishing somebody, right? We need to think the church training, correcting, helping somebody, right? That's what church discipline should be. And and there's actually two kinds of church discipline, Um, two kinds of church discipline. If you're familiar with church discipline, this may come as a surprise, but there are actually two kinds of discipline. One, we call formative discipline, formative discipline. That's simply participating in the regular life of the church being shaped by teaching, by fellowship, by relationship, um, those kinds of things, right? As, as you as a Christian do that, you're being shaped. You're growing, right? That's discipline. You're being discipled. That's formative discipline. 
The other kind of church discipline is what we call corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. Uh, and that is required when the disciple of Christ is going down a dangerous and destructive path of sin. And corrective discipline is what our text this morning is all about. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on heaven shall be bound in, uh, excuse me, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to it this morning. Oh, our Lord and our God, you are the Lord of the church. You created the church. Lord Jesus, you purchased the church by your blood. Father, you gave your son the church. The church belongs to you. And Lord, you have all authority in your church. And you have given your church instructions in how to uh, deal with sinning disciples. And Lord, this topic of church discipline is, um, Lord, it is not something that tickles our ears. It is a, a difficult topic, Lord, a heavy topic, um, a somber topic. Uh, but yet it is a biblical one. And so, Lord, we ask for your help as we hear your word this morning. Uh, would you help us to submit ourselves to Scripture? And not to our own ideas or opinions, but, Lord, to what your word says clearly. Um, Lord, our desire uh, must be to be an obedient church, obeying every part of Scripture, even the parts that do not feel good. So please, Holy Spirit, come help us to hear your word and to receive it. Help me to explain it clearly for your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Dealing with Sinning Disciples. Dealing with Sinning Disciples. That's really what it's all about. Um, and we're going to see four aspects of church discipline. The first is the prompting of church discipline. Um, what are the scenarios that sort of begin this process, which is our second point, the process of church discipline? Number three, the power of church discipline. Um, what authority does the church have to do this kind of thing? And number four, the prayerful purpose of church discipline. Why uh, do we follow these instructions? What is Jesus' goal in telling us as the church to do these things? So number one, the prompting of church discipline, verse 15 um, there, there's two factors that begin the process of corrective discipline. And we see both of those factors here in verse 15. The first is that sin has been committed or is being committed. If your brother sins against you, right? That's the first factor. Sin is being committed. Sin is the breaking of God's commands, right? Breaking what God says. Um, That's this very important. Church discipline is not about a disagreement. It's not about a, an offense. It's not about a conflict. It's not when somebody does something you don't like. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if sin is going on, if your brother sins against you, right? Scripture gets to decide what sin is. So that's the first thing, right? Sin is going on. But notice, uh, Jesus doesn't elaborate on which sins qualify for church discipline, does he? He doesn't say, if somebody does this from this list of sins, but not this list, then, right, here, here we go. He doesn't 
give us any kind of qualifications there. He merely says, if your brother sins against you. Uh, and, and that's because it's not ultimately the sin itself that is the issue at stake. Now, it may seem a little strange, I'll explain as we go, but it's not the nature of the sin that's the primary issue here. Jesus doesn't say murder counts for church discipline, but telling white lies doesn't. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say if your brother is embezzling millions of dollars, then you need to go to him. But you know, if he, uh, if he just refuses to attend the church's worship, right, then you don't have to deal with it. Right? Jesus doesn't say that. He just says sin. Jesus says sin. Um, and, and while sin might begin the whole process, as, we, as we'll see in a moment, it's ultimately a refusal to repent of that sin that moves the process along. So that's the first factor. Sin is going on. Uh, The second factor that we see here in verse 15 is that the one committing the sin is a brother. In other words, a Christian, a fellow disciple. Uh, This passage wouldn't make any sense if the person sinning in question was a pagan or an atheist or a Muslim right, or a Buddhist. Uh, Wouldn't make any sense. That person's not even on the path of discipleship to begin with. right? Um, No, this is about those who consider themselves disciples of Christ, those who make a profession of faith, those who say, yes, I follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means you're accountable to Jesus. Uh, And so these are the two factors here. A disciple of Christ is sinning. That's what starts this whole thing off. Now we may look at verse 15 and we we may wonder, okay, well, Jesus says if a brother sins against you, so does that mean that that this process here, this text, only applies to sin committed between two Christians? It does not. It does not. Um, for example, if you open up the newspaper tomorrow and you saw that um, I went into my neighbor's house, my neighbor's not a Christian, but I went into my neighbor's house and I stole all of his stuff and I got arrested, right? And you, you said, oh, that's not good. And you, you came to me and talked to me about it. And I said, nope, I think I did the right thing. Well, we, we would still be going down this, this text, wouldn't we? So it's not isolated to sin between two Christians only, um, but it means the person committing the sins is a Christian, right? That's uh, the important thing to realize. If a Christian commits a sin in their business dealings or personal life, this text applies just the same. So these two factors uh, must be present, right? If these are going on, then this text applies. And Jesus describes the process that his disciples are to take when their fellow disciple is sinning. It's sinning. Um, And so that brings us to our second point, the process of church discipline. What does this look like in practice? What does this look like in practice? This brings us to verses 15 again through 17. Now Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, the first step is to approach them. It's to approach them. Um, Now, you know, we we look at this and we may wonder, well, I mean, do I have to do that? Can't I just... Can't I just overlook it, right? Isn't that the Christian thing to do, to just graciously overlook the sin, the offense? Um, Well, uh, possibly, right? If it's just a a minor thing that happens as a one-off occurrence, you know, if my brother maybe snaps at me because he's having a bad day, we don't necessarily need to treat that as a big deal, right? We can forgive it and move on. But when we're talking about sin that's characteristic, habitual, or major, right, that's got to be addressed. That's got to be addressed, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, addressing it, doing what Jesus says here, going to that brother, allows for true reconciliation to happen and keeps grudges from being nursed, right? When a a brother or sister sins against you, going to them 
uh, to, to address that allows reconciliation to happen and keeps grudges from being nursed. Because here's what we do sometimes, right? We, we may tell ourselves, okay, you know what? I'm just going to overlook it. I'm just going to let it go. Um, when in reality, we're scared of confrontation. That's why we don't want to address it, right? Because we're scared of confrontation and we haven't actually let it go. And that sin, that anger, right, uh, just kind of festers in our heart. We end up holding a grudge. Um, but we're telling ourselves the whole time, no, I let it go. I forgave it, right? When, when we haven't really done that. But when we approach our brother or our sister about it, we say, hey, you sinned in this way. We create an opportunity for resolution, right? The second reason why we should address it is because it points out something in the sinning disciple's life that can have really destructive effects if it's not dealt with. Right? If somebody's in a habitual pattern of sin, and we do not go address that with them, we are actually allowing them to cause greater harm to themselves and to others. Uh, just as a doctor has an obligation to tell a patient about his cancer, we have an obligation to approach our fellow disciple about their sin, right? And, and so in this approach, in verse 15, in this conversation, Jesus says, the sinning disciple must be told his fault. That's the nature of the conversation. He must be told his fault. Um, in the Greek, the word means to reprove, to correct, to bring a problem to light. Right? That's the nature of the conversation is, hey, you've sinned in this way. Um, now, that does not mean that we go to our brother or sister and start yelling at them or being self-righteous towards them or being harsh towards them. That's not how we should approach this, right? This, this word to reproof or rebuke or correct doesn't speak to our demeanor, but to our activity. This is what we're supposed to do, to bring this to light, to bring this issue to light. Um, but of course, the way we do that should be a loving way that demonstrates genuine care for them, right? And this caring and restorative approach is emphasized in the next part of the verse. The conversation, Jesus says, should be between you and him alone. It should be private, should be individual, right? If at all possible, those immediately involved should be the ones addressing this issue, right? Since they're the ones in need of reconciliation. And the other thing this says too is protect their reputation and integrity. The goal should never be to slander or gossip about the sinning disciple. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples meet one-on-one -on -one first, privately. Try to just address it at that level. This, you know, we, we don't necessarily think about this as church discipline, as corrective discipline, but it is. When one disciple goes to another and says, hey, I'm really concerned about this that I see in your life. I'm really worried about this. I, I don't think this is good. What I see you doing goes against God's word. It's going to lead to your destruction and to your harm. I love you. I don't want to see that happen. Please don't do this. Or please, you know, recognize your sin and make it right. Um, we don't think about that as church discipline, but it is. Right? Are, are, are we not seeking to help that fellow disciple come back to what God would have them do for their good? Yes, we are, right? That's church discipline. That's church discipline. Now, things may not always be cut and dry. Right? Sin is rarely. Sin is often messy. And there may be some cases in which having an individual private conversation is not quite not quite possible. Uh, for example, if a violent crime has been committed right, against one of the people, or if there's been a sexually abusive situation, uh, then having a private one-on-one -on -one meeting may not be appropriate. That may not actually be the best approach. right? Um, but whenever possible, that's the step that should be taken. 
That's what Jesus says, right? And what's the desired goal? Why does Jesus say to do this? We see at the end of verse 15 um, that the sinning disciple listens, that they listen, that they hear what you have to say. But we need to go a little bit of a step further here because uh, we, we hear the word listening and we maybe have a couple different definitions of what that is. Um, listening is not just sound waves passing into your eardrum and being processed by your brain. Listening is actually a lot more than that, especially uh, when we're talking about confrontation over sin. The Bible describes listening as something that is always tied to action. Um, and we see this in a number of places, but I think one of the greatest examples is Jeremiah 26. Uh, turn there with me, Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. This is a great example of God's definition of listening. This is a, a picture of what God's definition of listening looks like. Jeremiah was a prophet, and the Lord sent him to the rulers of Judah. And this is what we read here. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. So God's sending Jeremiah with a message to bring to the people of Judah. It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I've set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. So God sends Jeremiah with a message to the people of Judah. Jeremiah is to bring this message to them. And God basically lays out two options. He says they'll either listen or they won't. And what is the sign in the text that they are actually listening? What's the sign in the text that they're actually listening? We see it in verse 3. It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way. That's going to be the sign that they're listening. That's what God counts as listening. They repent. They turn from their evil way, they turn back to the Lord, and they walk in his, his law, his way. That's called repentance. Now, what's the sign they're not listening? That they don't do this, right? That they don't turn back. Now, maybe they hear what Jeremiah has to say. Maybe they don't interrupt him, right? But if they don't pay it much attention, or if they don't do what Jeremiah is saying to them, are they listening? No. Their brains are processing the words, right? But are they doing what God defines as listening, which is repenting? No. No, right? Um, listening is hearing the charge of sin, understanding and acknowledging the charge of sin, and repenting of the sin. That's a lot more than just saying, I'm sorry, by the way, right? Repentance involves making things right as well. Uh, and this, brothers and sisters, is the goal of church discipline. It is restoration from sin, turning away from it. Restoration to God, right? Turning back to Him. Restoration between Christians. Reconciliation between the two. That's the goal, right? That's listening. That's listening. So this is the ideal scenario here in verse 15. And this is where we always hope it stops, right? We don't want to get to verses 16, 17, 
right, and so on. We hope this is, this is where it ends, right? This is ideal, a loving and private conversation between two disciples that leads to reconciliation and repentance. But unfortunately, this is not always what happens. This is not always what happens. We look at verse 16, turning back to Matthew, and we see that Jesus tells his disciples what to do when the sinning brother or sister does not listen, when they do not repent. In verse 16, he says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, notice that the original sin, whatever it was, is not the pressing issue. It is in a way, but it's, it's also not in a way. Right? Why are we going to verse 16? Well, it's because the sinning disciple has refused and failed to repent of that sin. Right? That's the issue, is impenitence, a refusal to repent. Um, the original sin may be small, may be great, but a refusal to repent is what leads to verse 16. A disciple who embezzles a million dollars but is genuinely repentant doesn't need verse 16. But a disciple who berates their spouse and is critical and refuses to stop, goes to verse 16, right? The original sin is not the primary issue. It is the refusal to repent. So if the disciple does not listen, Jesus says, take two or three uh, along to approach them, right? Add in one or two witnesses. And that's what Jesus appeals to. Deuteronomy 19.15, this command from the Old Testament uh, that required two to three witnesses to accept a charge of a crime, right, in, in the court. And we see this thing repeated in the New Testament as well, right? Requiring two to three witnesses for a charge of sin. Um, now, the first place our mind goes when we hear witnesses is, is what? Eyewitnesses. That's generally what we think, right? That these individuals must have actually witnessed the sin occurring. Um, and if that's possible, that's ideal, right? We don't want false charges of sin being brought against another disciple. We don't want that. And so having eyewitnesses is important to help prevent that from happening, right? Uh, that's important. But realistically, not all sin is witnessed by multiple people, is it? Uh, there are sins that the police may uncover, for example, that those within the church are unaware of. Right again, you may open the paper tomorrow and see that a member of our church was arrested for drunk driving. But none of us saw it, right? None of us were eyewitnesses to that. Um, so does that mean that we don't go to that person with concern over their sin? Well, of course not, right? So though eyewitnesses are ideal, they may not always be realistic. And that's not the only um, definition of witnesses in the Bible. There's a couple other reasons why Jesus requires witnesses. They serve other important functions in the discipline process as well. Um, they're witnesses not necessarily to the sin, but to the actual conversation with the sinning disciple. Right? They're actually there to watch one disciple say to the other, no, this is really bad, you, you need to repent. And they are there to watch what that sinning disciple does in response. That's what they are witnessing as well. They can testify to the sinning disciple's repentant or unrepentant response. Now, these witnesses can also serve as arbitrators in a way, right? Um, they can help objectively judge the validity of the charges of sin. Um, for example, if, if a brother or sister comes to you and says, you know what, this person, uh, they wore a perfume that I did not like and I've asked them to stop and they keep doing it and I think we need to do Matthew 18. And you go, well, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll go with you, but I don't think that's sin. 
I don't think we can treat that like sin, right? That's another role that these witnesses play, helping determine, hey, you know what? That's probably not a valid thing to bring up like that. But notice here that the goal is the same. Verse 15 and verse 16, they have the same goal, right? If they listen to you, right, you want to gain that brother. You want to win them back to what is right, to reconciliation, right? The goal here is the same. Hopefully the sending disciple listens to this larger group and is humbly repentant. <coughs> and restoration occurs. <clears throat> But here too, tragically, this does not always happen, right? Um, so what happens when the sinning disciple refuses to listen to this larger group, to these witnesses? In, in verse 17, we see the answer. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Jesus is clear. The matter at that point must be brought before the entire church. Uh, the, the ecclesia, the assembly, right, of, of Christians. Um, now, different churches handle this a little differently. Um, here at Fellowship Bible Church, we do not bring this to the entire congregation. We bring it to the members of the church, right? Since the members are the ones who have committed to hold one another accountable in this local body, right? Um, so in bringing the matter to the church, the goal is not to scandalize or gossip or destroy a reputation. The goal is to involve the entire church in reaching out and pleading with the impenitent disciple, uh, saying, brother, sister, Please consider the seriousness of what you're doing or of what you've done. Turn from that. Repent of that. Make things right. Right. The goal, again, is repentance and restoration. Uh, one voice can be easily ignored. A small group of disciples is more difficult to ignore, but an entire church of fellow disciples should be very hard to ignore. Right. But here, too, Sin can so harden the heart of the sinning disciple that they refuse to listen even to the church. They rebuff all those appeals. and They refuse to walk the path of repentance. And in that case, Jesus says there is only one option left. There's only one step left to take. Uh, the church must consider that disciple as a Gentile and a tax collector, verse 17. Now, what does that mean? There's, there's a lot of questions on what that means, and, and rightly so. Some people look at that and they think it means um, shunning, like what the Amish do or Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Completely cutting off that person, pretending they don't exist, basically, right? Um, that is not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what this means. Um, in Jewish culture, Gentiles and tax collectors were considered unclean. Um, they were not considered part of the people of Israel, and they were viewed as being outside the covenant assembly. Now here's what it comes down to. A disciple who refuses to repent of their sin cannot be considered a disciple at that point. A disciple who refuses to repent of their sin cannot be considered a disciple at that point. Right? Repentance in many ways is the most basic fruit and evidence of genuine Christianity. It's repentance. What's the very first thing Peter says to the crowds of people that say, what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe the gospel, right? That's square one. That's square one. And remember, the issue is not that the disciple sinned. We all sin frequently, right? The issue is that this disciple in question refuses to repent of sin. They refuse to hear what their disciple brothers and sisters are saying to them and, and turn from it. 
Perfection is not characteristic of a Christian. Repentance is characteristic of a Christian. Perfection is not characteristic of a true disciple. Repentance is characteristic of a true disciple. And that's what Paul means in Galatians when he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about repentance. So if a person won't repent of known sin, whatever they might say about their faith, they cannot be counted as a disciple any more than a penguin can be considered a draft. That's what Jesus is saying here. You must consider them as a Gentile or a tax collector. You must view them as somebody who's outside of the community of disciples. Now that might, that might sound harsh. That might sound harsh, but I, I would argue that we have far too low standards of repentance in the American church today. Um, as an example, in the past few years, there have been well-known megachurch pastors, <clears throat> um, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, to name a few, who have been removed from ministry because of serious, egregious, and long-lasting patterns of sin. But within weeks or months, they work as hard as they can just to get back to preaching again or having a ministry or having a pedestal, right? Having a platform. And it's allowed. It's allowed. Right? They want to get back to what is, is famous, right? And what they're well known for as soon as possible. And, and they're allowed to do it because they said the right things and appeared remorseful. But brothers and sisters, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. That's putting on an act to try to get back what you've lost. That's not godly sorrow. That's not true repentance. The unrepentant disciple can no longer be considered a disciple. They can no longer be considered a brother or sister in Christ. That can't be affirmed. That's what Jesus is saying. Their profession of faith has been invalidated by their actions. Um, that's, that's their status until there are fruits of repentance, a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean we can't talk to that person. That, can't, that doesn't mean we can't say hi in the store, right? That doesn't mean we pretend they don't exist. But it also means we can't pretend that they are a disciple of Christ based on their lack of repentance. That doesn't mean we can't have Christian fellowship with them any more than we could a non-Christian. Jesus' point here is that they must be treated as an unbeliever. That doesn't mean scorned or, you know, uh, treated like a pariah or anything like that, but they cannot be viewed as a disciple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church about a real-life church discipline situation. Now you can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 is what we are going to look at. Uh, he describes a, a scenario here where there is somebody in the church who is uh, sleeping with his, um, his stepmother, basically. And the church has done nothing about it. This is a well-known public thing, and the Corinthians haven't addressed it at all. And Paul scolds them a bit for it. He says, this is wrong that you guys have not dealt with this. Um, and towards the end of this, this chapter here, here's what he says in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Right, what's Paul saying? He's saying you can't associate with that person like they're a Christian because their lack of repentance is contradicting their profession of faith and discipleship. 
You can't do it. You can't pretend that that's the case. You can't even eat with such a one. And eating there would be sharing the Lord's Supper with them. Right? That, this doesn't make anybody feel good, does it? Right? Thinking about having to do this doesn't make anybody feel good. Nobody wants to be you know, viewed as the bad guy. But the Bible's clear, unrepentant disciples cannot be considered disciples at all. And as a result of this, such a person is barred from the Lord's Supper. They're barred from membership in the church. They don't get to vote in the church. Um, and they don't get to serve as a Christian in the church. It doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't mean they can't go to church, right? They should. But it does mean they cannot be treated as a disciple, right, in, in good standing. And if you don't follow Jesus' instructions here, you're actually doing the sinning disciple a great disservice. Um, you're actually confirming them in their sin and pushing them further into their impenitence. And that is not something I would want to be held accountable to God for. There, there's nothing fun or enjoyable about having to go through church discipline, having to go through this process. There's nothing pleasant about watching a fellow disciple that you love, that you've served alongside, that you've worshipped alongside, choose their sin and pride over restoration and repentance. There is nothing enjoyable about that. But does Jesus give us an option as to what we are to do when such a thing occurs? He doesn't. He doesn't say, if you don't like Matthew 18, 15 through 20, here's another possibility. He doesn't say that. He says, this is what you have to do. He's He's so clear about the necessity of this practice. Some theologians even consider church discipline the third mark of a true church, along with preaching of the word and, and the ordinances. Are you convinced of the biblical necessity of church discipline? As Jesus describes it here again, nobody's saying it feels good. Nobody's saying it feels good, but that's not what we decide what to do, right? We don't decide that based on how we feel. The question is, is it biblical? Is it biblical? I would say not only is it biblical, but Jesus goes on to describe a certain power and authority that he's given to his church uh, to carry out this process. We see that in verse 18, the power of church discipline. Uh, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on heaven shall be bound, excuse me, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In verse 18, Jesus reveals that when the church exercises discipline and declares an unrepentant disciple as a Gentile and a tax collector that it, it doesn't do this on the basis of its own authority or on its own power, but on the basis of heaven's power and authority. Jesus is giving his church a key to open and close, to bind and loose. We've seen this kind of language earlier back in Matthew 16 when Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He tells Peter, yes, Right? I'm, I'm giving you the key to open and close. Right, In other words, he gave the church, the apostles, the key of doctrine. Saying, yes, you have the gospel. And when you share the gospel, when you put that doctrine out there, you're opening up the gates of heaven to those who believe it. Well, here we see the same kind of language, binding and loosing. Uh, yet here it's not the key of doctrine, but the key of discipline. Binding and loosing, again, can be described as, um, as, as opening or closing. Right? Like a door opening it or closing it, binding a person or, or releasing them. And the idea here is that when the gathered church agrees that an individual is unrepentant and no longer can affirm their profession of faith, they are reflecting heaven's perspective on the matter. That's if discipline's been done correctly and biblically, right? 
When they declare a person is outside the path of discipleship to Jesus, that declaration is a reflection of heaven's declaration as well. This, this is essentially binding or closing the door to Christian fellowship. But if that impenitent person repents, then the church gets to joyously loose that unbeliever. They say, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're not an unbeliever. You've proven it. You've repented. Welcome back in. Please come back and fellowship with us, right? The door is open. That's a weighty thing, isn't it? The authority that Christ gives to his church, and, and, and it's for that reason the church should tremble in fear and humility before God when getting to this last step, what's commonly called excommunication. Um, that's a sobering thing, not to be done lightly. Right? It's, a, it's a pretty serious judgment upon a person's legitimacy as a disciple. And if there's never repentance, that's a pretty serious judgment on the condition of their soul. But Jesus has given not just the authority or the responsibility, but he's also given his church the authority to do this. Um, we take a congregational vote for the last step of church discipline here. It's not a decision the elders make by themselves, but we bring it to the church because Christ doesn't give the key of discipline to the elders of a church. He gives it to the church. Right? That's the idea here, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says to the church, remove that person from your midst. A church that never disciplines impenitent members provides false assurance of salvation to them and, and, and really ends up opening and, and loosing what should be closed apart from repentance. Right? We, we cannot forget that Jesus' church is called to be what? Holy. It's called to be holy. The church is called to pursue holiness, and part of that requires removing unrepentant holiness from the church's midst. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, this is serious language. Now, we want to be clear, uh, that doesn't mean that people who aren't disciples aren't allowed in church or that they're going to get in trouble right, for going to church or something like that. It doesn't mean that people who are living in sin but aren't members of a local church can't come to church or they're going to get in trouble. That's not what we're talking about here. What it means is that somebody who's a member of the church who says, I'm a disciple, I'm accountable to this church, that when that person refuses to live as a disciple and repent of their sin, they cannot be treated as a disciple. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't worry. You're not going to get church discipline for not being a Christian, okay? Right? That's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about people who say, yes, I want to be a member. I want to be accountable. Those are the people, right, who are saying, yes, if I, if I start going down this path, please do Matthew 18 for me, right? If I am unrepentant of sin, I want you to do Matthew 18 for me, right? That's, that's important. You don't have to be an elder to come talk to me if I'm in sin, right? That's what this passage is for. It's for members of a local church. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Pretty sobering stuff. And it's the part of church life that we don't like to think about and that we, we even less like to actually have to walk through. Um, but even this strong aspect of church discipline, it doesn't negate or diminish the prayerful purpose of church discipline. It's our last point. What is that prayerful purpose? It is restoration. It's restoration. Now, when we look at verses 19 and 20, it may not be particularly clear how they apply to the rest of the text. 
Um, but there's definitely a connection. Um, the, these verses here end up getting used out of context a lot, uh, right, where two or more are gathered, and we kind of just slap that onto any time, like two or three Christians are in a room together. We're like, yep, this verse applies. Great things are going to happen. Um, but, you know, again, the context is, is not that. It's church discipline. It's church discipline. And Jesus has already mentioned two or three in regards to witnesses, right? So it's within that context that we find these verses. And in verse 19, we see Jesus tells his disciples that when they're in agreement about something that they're asking of God, it will be done for them. Um, now, this is about prayer, right? That's pretty obvious. It's about prayer. But what does prayer have to do with church discipline? What's prayer have to do with church discipline? <clears throat> well, what should the church be praying for throughout and following the process of church discipline? The restoration of that, of that disciple, right? That should be the prayer. Lord, please bring them back. Help them to see, right? Bring them back. Don't give them up for loss, but continue to pray for their repentance. And if a church is praying for such a thing, they should pray for it as if it was an absolute certainty that God will grant it. Right? Praying with confidence as if, in the words of Jesus, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, as long as it agrees with God's will, right? And, and if that sinning disciple is one of Christ's sheep, and the church prays for their restoration, God will bring that disciple back. We saw that in our parable last week, right? God will answer the church's prayer if that person is genuinely one of Christ's sheep. And in the same vein, in, in verse 20, Jesus says that whenever his disciples are gathered, right, two or three in his name, there he is among them. <clears throat> well, what does that have to do with church discipline? Everything. Everything. Right? Think about it. When, when a church has to exercise church discipline, or bear witness against an impenitent brother, uh, Jesus is there with them. He's supporting the church's attempt to retrieve that sinning disciple. He's not there in body, right? His body is in heaven. Um, but he's there spiritually. He's there in agreement with them, just like he says in Matthew 28, right? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is saying, I'm not absent from a church that's rightfully practicing church discipline. I'm actually with that church. I'm actually uh, speaking with the voice of the shepherd as that church uh, speaks to that disciple, right? That's really what he's saying. And again, the goal is restoration, right? When Jesus stands with the church, their voice is his voice. And his voice is the voice of the good shepherd, calling his true sheep back. <clears throat> if a disciplined member is genuinely a disciple of Jesus, they may have a season of unrepentance, right? That may happen. That does happen. But if they belong to him, he will bring them back. That person will eventually repent by the grace of God. It might be on their deathbed. I don't know. But they will genuinely repent by the grace of God. But a disciple, so to speak, who never repents in response to the church's appeals and excommunication, who refuses to repent, they provide no evidence of hearing the shepherd's voice. It's a serious thing. But sometimes we can get so caught up in the process of discipline that we can lose the goal and the focus of discipline, right? We get so, um, so worried about, oh, you know, am I going to be mean? Is this the right thing to do, right? We, we get so focused on the process, we lose sight of the goal. Um, the goal, in part, is to keep the church holy. The goal, in part, is to keep the name of Christ from, from falling into disrepute by unrepentant disciples taking his name. But ultimately, and foremost, 
The goal, the purpose, is to lovingly bring back those who are careening down a path of sin, a path that will lead to their destruction. That's the ultimate goal and purpose of church discipline. And if we love our brothers and sisters, we must commit to Jesus' instructions in this text when necessary, but we must also always ensure that our commitment to Jesus' instructions here in this text is always grounded and practiced not with self-righteousness, not with apathy, not with vindictiveness, but with love. But with love. Now, I mentioned that Paul and the Corinthians dealt with a real-life church discipline situation in, in 1 Corinthians where someone was actually removed, excommunicated because of, of their unrepentance. And we may wonder what happened. What happened to that person right, that was removed? Well, we actually get to see the result. That's really neat. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes to the Corinthians and, and says uh, to them, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What happened? That sinning disciple repented. He heard the voice of Christ through the voice of the church and came back. He said, I'm not going to do that with my mother-in-law anymore. I'm repenting of that. I'm not going to do that. Please receive me back. And Paul says, you must. And you must do it because of love. You must do it with forgiveness and grace. A church discipline work. So that's the goal, brothers and sisters. That's the hope. That's the purpose of church discipline. Whether it's at the first step there in, in, in verse 15 or whether it's the last in verse 17. Loving restoration. That hope of forgiveness and reconciliation and that extension of grace. All those things that we as sinners have received from Christ. That's ultimately what church discipline is an opportunity for. It's a chance to display the forgiveness and grace of the gospel. The reality is, apart from the grace of God, any one of us could be that brother or sister going through that process, being the one who's appealed to. Right? That could be any one of us. None of us are too good for that. And we must remember that when we are appealing to our fellow disciple. Right? As we're, as we're reaching out to them, we're bought by the same blood. We have the same hope in Christ. That we are in need of the same grace as them. And that we're capable of doing the same thing. I uh, read a, a, a story once of these two pastors who were going to do such a thing. They were going to approach a sinning brother. And one of the pastors said to the other, do you think you could ever do what this brother has done? And the other pastor said, no, no way. And that first pastor said, you know what, I'm actually not going to take you. Right? Because a person who thinks they could never end up doing those things is not going to be gracious. They're going to be self-righteous. And so we must remember our own sinfulness and the gospel that we have benefited from and the mercy we've received in Christ. And that must be the basis from beginning to end of church discipline. That must be the heart that we have as disciples, as a church. And in that, the gospel is displayed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that it is not confusing, but uh, Lord, that it is clear. Uh, Lord, in this area that your instructions, Lord Jesus, to us are, are clear. And uh, Lord, in truth, it's their clarity that sometimes causes us to be reluctant or hesitant uh, to do them. Uh, Lord, but how can we do anything else? 
Father, we thank you that you do work through church discipline, that you do restore uh, your straying sheep and your unrepentant disciples. Uh, Lord, that you are gracious to bring about that desired goal at times. And Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, if, if such occasions ever arise, whether it's us going to a brother one-on-one or uh, us having to make a declaration about an unrepentant disciple as a church, Lord, that our own hearts, our own approach would be humble, merciful, hopeful, and Lord, desiring that reconciliation and repentance, desiring that to be an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed, Lord, in that extension of forgiveness and grace, Lord, when that repentance comes. But Father, we also acknowledge that the results are in your hands, and that Lord, our call is simply to be faithful to what Christ has called us to do, and that you are the one who calls your sheep home. And so, Lord, it is in that that we rest. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.